Hello, and welcome to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans, a podcast taking you on a tour through ancient Greek and Roman history, seen through the lives of the most famous and influential people who lived it, with the ancient historian and biographer Plutarch as our guide and companion. Welcome back, everyone, for our conclusion of the life of Alcibiades. It's been a longer than usual delay since the posting of our last episode, and we thank everyone for their patience. So we'll start off this episode with a quick recap of the last two episodes, to get us back up to speed. In the last episode, we saw how, during a break in the war with Sparta, the Athenians chose, due largely to the boosterism of Alcibiades, to vote in favor of a grand military expedition to the island of Sicily. This was in spite of warnings from Nicias, who saw little to gain and much to lose in such an endeavor. Though the Athenians ignored his advice, they chose him as one of the commanders of the expedition in deference to his wisdom. On the eve of the expedition's launch, however, sacred herms all over Athens were vandalized, and suspicion fell on Alcibiades, who was known for his outrageous behavior, as being the guilty party. The expedition launch went ahead as planned, with Alcibiades as one of the generals. However, soon after the fleet arrived at its destination, and before any real action could get underway, orders arrived from Athens demanding that Alcibiades return to the city to face charges. Alcibiades fled instead, and eventually ended up in Sparta, where he offered counsel to the enemy he had long opposed. Meanwhile in Sicily, the expedition's third general, Lamachus, fell in battle, leaving Nicias as the sole commander of a hard-fought campaign against the city of Syracuse. With the arrival of the Spartan Gylippus to aid the Syracusans, the tide turned against the Athenians, and the besiegers found themselves besieged in their own camp. Their fleet was defeated, a desperate attempt to escape overland failed, and most of the Athenians were killed or enslaved. Nicias was executed by victorious Syracusans. Wow, very sad end for a man who seems to have spent his life doing what he thought was best for the city. It certainly does seem like a cruel end for Nicias. And now Athens found itself in a dire situation. The gamble in Sicily had failed, Nicias was dead, and Alcibiades had gone over to the enemy. In fact, the predicament was so bad that when news first reached Athens in 413 BC of the disaster in Sicily, many couldn't believe it was true. Thucydides writes that, when the news was brought to Athens, for a long while they disbelieved even the most respectable of the soldiers who had themselves escaped from the scene of action and clearly reported the matter, a destruction so complete not being thought credible. When the conviction was forced upon them, they were angry with the orders who had joined in promoting the expedition, just as if they had not themselves voted it, and were enraged also with the reciters of oracles and soothsayers and all other omen mongers of the time who had encouraged them to hope that they should conquer Sicily. A great many hoplites had been lost, their fleet had been destroyed, and they didn't have the money or manpower to replace it. But to their credit, Thucydides indicates that the Athenians did not give themselves over to despair for long, but soon set to work on rebuilding a fleet as best they could, determined to fight to defend their city and empire against the Spartans, who they were sure would be coming for them now. Sparta and her allies were indeed preparing to do just that, seeing an opportunity now to end the Athenian threat. Speaking of Sparta, it seems that Alcibiades was adjusting quite well to his new environment. Plutarch says that as soon as Alcibiades arrived in Sparta, he advised the Spartans to send aid to Syracuse, which they did in the form of Gylippus, and proved successful. And he also advised the Spartans to fortify Decelea, a place close to Athens, to harass the Athenians year-round and prevent access from the land. Alcibiades went beyond just making himself useful to the Spartans, though. According to Plutarch, he completely threw himself into the Lacedaemonian lifestyle. Plutarch writes that, quote, He captivated and won over everybody by his conformity to Spartan habits. People who saw him wearing his hair close-cut, bathing in cold water, 
eating coarse meal, and dining on black broth, doubted, or rather could not believe that he ever had a cook in his house, or had ever seen a perfumer, or had worn a mantle of Milesian purple. End quote. Perhaps Alcibiades was a bit too successful in making the Spartans love him, because before too long, he had begun an affair with Timaea, the wife of the Spartan king Aegis, who became pregnant and bore Alcibiades' child. Nor was this much of a secret, because Plutarch reports that, quote, Nor did she even deny it, but when she was brought to bed of a son, called him in public Leotychides, but, amongst her confidants and attendants, would whisper that his name was Alcibiades. To such a degree was she transported by her passion for him. He, on the other side, would say, in his vain way, he had not done this thing out of mere wantonness of insult, nor to gratify a passion, but that his race might one day be kings over the Lacedaemonians. End quote. Wow, he certainly did have a high opinion of himself, though. Alcibiades, it seems, was never lacking in confidence. Anyway, throughout all this, Sparta was preparing for war and gave each of her allies a quota of ships to be built for a new fleet intended to strip Athens of her empire. The fleet was dispatched to the eastern Aegean, and Alcibiades went with it, where Plutarch says that he, quote, procured the immediate revolt of almost all Ionia, and, cooperating with the Lacedaemonian generals, did great mischief to the Athenians. But Aegis was his enemy, hating him for having dishonored his wife, and also impatient of his glory, as almost every enterprise and every success was ascribed to Alcibiades. Others also, of the most powerful and ambitious amongst the Spartans, were possessed with jealousy of him, and at last prevailed with the magistrates in the city to send orders into Ionia that he should be killed. End quote. So orders were sent out from Sparta to the fleet that Alcibiades should be killed. However, Alcibiades caught wind of this and fled to the Persian satrap Tissaphernes. You may remember from previous episodes that in the Persian Empire, a satrap was like a provincial governor. Tissaphernes was the satrap of Lydia and Caria in Asia Minor. And now that Alcibiades found himself with enemies in both Athens and Sparta, it was to Tissaphernes that Alcibiades turned for protection. And you probably won't be surprised at this point to hear it, but... Alcibiades fits right in with the Persians. Yeah, that's right. He almost immediately becomes Tissaphernes' closest advisor. Tissaphernes admired Alcibiades' cunning, and as Plutarch puts it, Alcibiades had, quote, this particular talent and artifice for gaining men's affections that he could at once comply with and really embrace and enter into their habits and ways of life, and change faster than the chameleon. At Sparta, he was devoted to athletic exercises, was frugal and reserved. In Ionia, luxurious, gay, and indolent. In Thrace, always drinking. In Thessaly, ever on horseback. And when he lived with Tissaphernes, the Persian satrap, he exceeded the Persians themselves in magnificence and pomp. And indeed, the charm of daily intercourse with him was more than any character could resist or any disposition escape. Even those who feared and envied him could not but take delight and have a sort of kindness for him when they saw him and were in his company. So that Tissaphernes, otherwise a cruel character, and above all other Persians a hater of the Greeks, was yet so won by the flatteries of Alcibiades that he set himself even to exceed him in responding to them. End quote. So he's very clearly a charismatic person. Yeah, absolutely. He could charm anyone, apparently. Anyway, at this point, Tissaphernes had already been in negotiations with the Spartans to aid them in their struggle against Athens. Alcibiades' advice to Tissaphernes was to reduce the pay to the Spartan fleet and begin paying them inconsistently. He argued that the best scenario for Persia is a prolonged war between Sparta and Athens, in which both combatants would wear each other down. He told Tissaphernes that of the two powers, Athens was actually the less threatening opponent for Persia, as their power was strictly naval 
whereas the Spartan infantry power could potentially threaten Persian territory in the interior. At this point, Alcibiades began sending messages to certain individuals among the Athenians, indicating that he now had the ear of Tissaphernes and could convince the Persian satrap to support Athens instead of Sparta, but only if they switched their government from a democracy to an oligarchy. But if you look at it from the point of view of Athens, who's had democracy for nearly a hundred years at this point, can the Athenians, you know, they can't really consider banding democracy just for the sake of a treaty with Persia. I mean, I don't think so, right? Well, it does seem like a strange move to abandon democracy at this point. However, Pisander, who spoke in favor of this proposal in the Ecclesia, did make some interesting arguments. He argued that now that the Spartans had a fleet of their own and Persian gold to pay their sailors with, coming to an agreement with Persia was their only hope for survival. Survival was more important than the form of government. After all, they could always switch back to a democracy once the war was won. Since nobody had any better ideas, the Athenians voted to send Pisander along with some other envoys to see what kind of deal they could reach with the satrap Tissaphernes. Tissaphernes, though, seems to have fully adopted Alcibiades' previous advice to side with neither Athens nor Sparta, but instead play off the sides against each other. Antisophernes refused to reach an agreement with the Athenian envoys, but instead continued to add more demands whenever a deal seemed close to being reached. So it really sounds like this war between Athens and Sparta was a dream come true for the Persians. I mean, absolutely. Neither Athens nor Sparta were a threat to Persia, as long as they continued to war with each other. Anyway, despite not being able to reach an agreement with Tissaphernes, the oligarchs in Athens decided to seize power anyways, using gangs, intimidation, and murder to silence any resistance. And so a body of oligarchs known as the 400 began to rule by force in Athens. Now at this time, the Athenian fleet was based at the island of Samos. So the government was in Athens, but the nucleus of the army and navy was in Samos. And the sailors of the fleet were regular Athenians who had no wish to give up democracy to be ruled by oligarchs. So the troops at Samos took vows to oppose the 400 and continue the war with Sparta on their own account. Wow, so there's almost an Athenian civil war brewing now. Yeah, there was a rift, or as Thucydides puts it, quote, The struggle was now between the army trying to force democracy upon the city, and the 400 and oligarchy upon the army. End quote. To attempt to improve their position by gaining the friendship of Tissaphernes in the summer of 411 BC, the army recalled Alcibiades to them in Samos. Meanwhile, in Athens, the 400 were alarmed by the animosity of the army in Samos, and sought to reach a peace agreement with Sparta to protect themselves. Anyway, when Alcibiades arrived in Samos and addressed the army, he quickly convinced them that his influence with the satrap Tissaphernes was so great that as long as they stuck with him, they would have all the support they needed to win the war with Sparta. The army was so elated that they immediately voted to make Alcibiades general. So just like that, Alcibiades is back. So let, let's let's do the math here. So he went from Athens to mm-hmm. Sparta. Yep to Persia, and now back to Athens. That's right, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, he's made it back to the Athenian army, but not all the way back to his home city yet. And in that regard, Alcibiades would now display admirable wisdom and restraint. For the Athenian forces in Samos now clamored to sail back to Athens with the fleet and put an end to the regime of the 400. And it must have been tempting to do just that and return home as an avenging hero. However, Alcibiades instead restrained them, saying it was more important to secure their empire in the Aegean Sea first. Plutarch says that Alcibiades, quote, By restraining them from the great error they were about to commit, 
unequivocally saved the commonwealth. For if they then had sailed to Athens, all Ionia and the islands and the Hellespont would have fallen into the enemy's hands without opposition, while the Athenians, involved in civil war, would have been fighting with one another within the circuit of their own walls. It was Alcibiades alone, or at least principally, who prevented all this mischief, for he not only used persuasion to the whole army and showed them the danger, but applied himself to them one by one in treating some and constraining others. End quote. But although Alcibiades convinced the fleet not to immediately sail against the 400 in Athens, the oligarchs were feeling far from secure. The army in Samos was against them, their envoys failed to secure a peace treaty with Sparta, and the resistance within the city which had initially been quelled with murder and intimidation was beginning to bubble up again. The Spartans, cautious as always, seemed to have failed to grasp the opportunity that they now had to divide and conquer with the rift existing between the Athenian army and the city. A Spartan fleet did, however, sail to Evia, and after winning a battle off of Eretria, caused nearly the entire island to revolt from Athens. The loss of such an important piece of the Athenian Empire was the nail in the coffin for the regime of the 400. The Athenians held an assembly in the Penix, where they voted to remove the 400 from power and place the government in the hands of a new body known as the 5,000. This body included any man who could afford to furnish a suit of hoplite armor, and the government of the 5,000 gets high praise from the historian Thucydides, at least, who claimed that it balanced the interests of the upper and lower classes and produced the best governance that he ever saw in his lifetime. With the 400 removed from power, Plutarch says that, quote, Now the people in the city not only desired, but commanded Alcibiades to return home from his exile. He, however, desired not to owe his return to the mere grace and commiseration of the people, and resolved to come back, not with empty hands, but with glory, and after some service done. End quote. Well, you know, I can sort of see what he wanted to do here. He didn't want to get summoned home. He kind of wanted to go back on his own terms, right? Yeah, and it probably wasn't a bad idea to try and maximize his public support before going home, just in case any of his enemies still had it in their minds to try to prosecute him. In any event, he would not have to wait long for an opportunity to prove himself, as the Athenian and Peloponnesian fleets came together to battle each other in the Hellespont near Abydos. The battle actually started before Alcibiades could arrive on the scene, and raged pretty evenly from morning to mid-afternoon, when suddenly Alcibiades sailed into sight with 18 additional triremes, and tipped the battle in favor of the Athenians. Now, at this point the Spartans, who found their support from the Persian satrap Tissaphernes to have become inconsistent, had found a new sponsor in Pharnabazus, the satrap of Phrygia. When Alcibiades arrived at Abydos with reinforcements, and the battle turned against the Spartans, they retreated to land where Pharnabazus had a Persian army, and it was only the presence of this army which prevented the Athenians from seizing or destroying all of the Peloponnesian ships, but the Athenians still managed to take some 30 ships. This victory was followed up with another battle in the following year, 410 BC, at Cyzicus. Alcibiades approached the harbour of Cyzicus where the Peloponnesian fleet was holed up, with a relatively small force of 40 ships, and the Peloponnesians, seeing the relative smallness of the enemy fleet, moved out of the harbour to give battle. However, once they were engaged, the rest of the Athenian fleet, which had been concealed, moved in to cut off their retreat. The Spartans were put to rout, and the Athenians pursued them on to land to complete the victory. The satrap Pharnabazus was only able to save himself from the debacle by fleeing. Plutarch says that the Athenians, quote, slew great numbers of their enemies, won much spoil, and took all their ships. They also made themselves masters of Cyzicus, which was deserted by Pharnabazus, and destroyed its Peloponnesian garrison and thereby not only secured to themselves the Hellespont, but by force drove the Lacedaemonians from out of all the rest of the sea, 
End quote. The twin victories at Abydos and Cyzicus were very important as they gave Athens control of the Hellespont, which was the route traveled by the shipments of grain coming from the Black Sea region, which kept Athens fed. Yes, even in ancient times, grain from the region of modern-day Ukraine was an important commodity, something which we are noticing again in 2022, as war disrupts the supply of this agricultural resource once again. Yeah, it looks like history's repeating itself. So I'm guessing that now following these victories, Alcibiades can finally return to Athens on his terms? That's exactly right. Plutarch says that Alcibiades, quote, began to desire to see his native country again, or rather, to show his fellow citizens a person who had gained so many victories for them. He set sail for Athens, the ships that accompanied him being adorned with great numbers of shields and other spoils, and towing after them many galleys taken from the enemy, and the ensigns and ornaments of many others which he had sunk and destroyed, all of them together amounting to 200, end quote. Despite arriving in triumphant manner, however, Plutarch says that Alcibiades was at first nervous to disembark from his ship, until he saw friends on shore urging him to come. Once he was landed in the harbor of Piraeus, though, his fears must have evaporated, as he was thronged by cheering Athenians who crowned him with garlands and saluted him. Not long after arriving back in Athens, Alcibiades led a religious procession from the city to the sacred shrine of Eleusis, a yearly tradition that the Athenians had not been able to perform since the Spartans fortified Decelea and patrolled the Athenian countryside, something you will recall they were advised to do by Alcibiades. Anyway, Alcibiades led the procession, which was protected by hoplites and safely made its way to Eleusis and back to Athens. After this feat, Alcibiades' popularity, which had already been immense, was now positively sky-high. Many Athenians felt that their army could not fail so long as Alcibiades led them, and some common folk began to talk openly of their wish for him to assume the role of tyrant. Plutarch says that it isn't clear how much Alcibiades himself wished to wield such power, but Athens' leading citizens were concerned enough at the prospect of it that they hurried him out of the city and back to sea with a fleet of a hundred ships at his command. Alcibiades had reached the pinnacle of success, but you probably won't be surprised at this point to hear that his luck would not hold. It seems his reputation for greatness had grown to the point that it was almost impossible to live up to, Plutarch says that, quote, Certainly, if ever man was ruined by his own glory, it was Alcibiades, for his continual success had produced such an idea of his courage and conduct that, if he failed in anything he undertook, it was imputed to his neglect, and no one would believe it was through want of power, for they thought nothing was too hard for him if he went about it in good earnest. It was represented that Alcibiades had ruined their affairs and lost their ships by mere self-conceited neglect of his duties, committing the government of the army in his absence to men who gained his favor by drinking and scurrilous talking, while he wandered up and down at pleasure to raise money, giving himself up to every sort of luxury and excess amongst the courtesans of Abydos and Ionia, at a time when the enemy's navy were on watch close at hand. It was also objected to him that he had fortified a castle near Basanthe in Thrace, for a safe retreat for himself, as one that either could not or would not live in his own country. The Athenians gave credit to these informations, and showed the resentment and displeasure which they had conceived against him by choosing other generals. They never considered how extremely money was wanting, and that having to carry on war with an enemy who had supplies of all things from a great king, he was often forced to quit his armament in order to procure money and provisions for the subsistence of his soldiers. End quote. Well, seeing how quickly the Athenians churned on him, maybe he has actually wise to have set up that base for himself to flee to if he needed to. Yeah, I have a feeling that he was well aware how fickle the Athenian people could be, and realized that a man such as himself needed a plan B in case the people turned on him. Anyway, whether he had planned it out in advance or not, 
After the Athenians lost faith in him again and voted for new generals, Alcibiades was able to carve out a little kingdom for himself in Thrace. However, the Athenians may have been too hasty in removing Alcibiades as their general, for the war with Sparta was not over yet. In 405 BC, the Athenian and Spartan fleets were engaged in a bit of a standoff, again in the Hellespont, with the Spartan fleet refusing to engage the Athenian fleet in a battle. The Athenians were posted at Egospotami, and Alcibiades, who now lived in the neighborhood, so to speak, rode to visit the Athenian camp. He noticed that, perhaps lulled into complacency by the apparent reluctance of the Spartans to do battle, the Athenians were not defending the camp very vigilantly, and had chosen an indefensible location to make the camp. He advised the Athenian generals to move the fleet to Sestos, where it would be more secure from attack, but his advice was dismissed by the generals, with one, Tydeus, reminding Alcibiades that it was they, not he, who now commanded the fleet. Alcibiades left, finding his advice unwanted, but in the end it seems he was correct. We will get into details of the Battle of Agospotami in our upcoming episode about the Spartan Lysander, but suffice it to say for now that the Athenians did find themselves caught by surprise by a Spartan attack, something which likely could have been avoided had their commanders listened to Alcibiades. Following this battle, with the Spartans controlling the region, Alcibiades thought it was wise to remove himself first to Bithynia and then into Phrygia, where he sought the aid of the satrap Pharnabazus. He dwelled in Phrygia for some time, but there were some in Sparta who did not feel entirely secure so long as Alcibiades was out there alive somewhere. Well, he had shown a pretty impressive ability to make comebacks and cause problems for his enemies, so... True enough. So the Spartans sent a request to Pharnabazus to have Alcibiades eliminated. Pharnabazus decided to comply with this request, probably reasoning that as much as Alcibiades is a fun guy to have around, it would be wise to do the Spartans this favor and be on their good side. So assassins were sent to the small village in Phrygia where Alcibiades was then residing with his mistress Tamandra, and this time it seems that Alcibiades didn't receive any advance warning. The assassins surrounded his house, and rather than attempt to enter, they set fire to the building with Alcibiades inside. Alcibiades wrapped himself in a heavy cloak to protect himself from the fire, and rushed out through the flames with his sword in hand. None of his adversaries would engage him in hand-to-hand, though, and Plutarch says that they slew him with darts and arrows. And so the mighty Alcibiades fell in 404 BC, aged 45 or 46, pierced with many arrows, dying in exile far from home outside of a burning house in Phrygia. Wow. Taken as a whole, that has to be one of the most unbelievable lives that you know, we've looked at so far. Such interesting personality and so many ups and so many downs. Yeah, and I find myself wondering, as we often do when looking at history, how things might have turned out if things had gone just a little differently here or there. If, for example, Alcibiades had not been removed from command before the Sicilian campaign got underway, or had he not been removed from command again years later, how might things have turned out? Or, if he had not had an affair with the Spartan king Aegis' wife Timaea and burned his bridges in Sparta. At any number of points during the life of Alcibiades, it seems that had different choices been made, ancient Greek history might have turned out very differently. Well, that's our episode for today. Hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you'll join us next time when we find out how the war between Athens and Sparta will conclude with Alcibiades out of the picture. Thanks for listening to Plutarch's Greeks and Romans podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to head over to our blog at plutarchsgreeksromans.wordpress.com or check out Plutarch's Greeks and Romans on Facebook. And don't forget to leave us a review on whichever podcast service you're using. See you next time.